know, a lot of people think of lean as being frugal, if you will. You know, like we want to be lean because we're nonprofits. We don't have a lot of money, so we want to be lean. And that's actually one definition of the word lean. It's not what we mean when we say lean startup or lean impact. What we mean by lean is to avoid waste. That it's not that we're trying to spend a little bit of money, it's we're trying to be smart and make each dollar go further. Not only because we don't necessarily have very much money, but because the problems are so big and we need to get much more leverage out of the money that we have. This is Mission to Scale, a podcast that reveals the tools, mindsets, and strategies that organizations and funders need to make the most impact. Because the world's biggest problems need solutions at scale. I'm your host, Dan Berelovitz. In 2008, entrepreneur Eric Ries wrote the seminal book Lean Startup. Eric detailed a methodology that favored experimentation and customer feedback in short cycles. He popularized the word pivot for when a business direction change is needed, giving entrepreneurs a language they could use when innovating for scale. Many social entrepreneurs who were seeking to create social good tried to use these principles, but they didn't directly translate as they missed the need for impact at the core of any social change initiative. Today's guest drew upon her unique multi-sector background to build upon the Lean Startup methodology specifically for those who are seeking to create massive social change. Anne-Mei Chang, author of the best-selling book Lean Impact, shows us how we can achieve radically greater social good. Before working as Chief Innovation Officer at USAID, Anne-Mei worked in Silicon Valley for over 20 years, including companies like Google, Apple and Intuit. She then decided to make a career pivot. When I looked around the world to try to look at what problems I cared about that I might want to work on, the thing that kind of came front and center to me was global poverty that seemed to be at the root of so many of the things I cared about. And I've always been very interested in systems change and and really, you know, kind of changing things in a permanent way. But what I found as I learned more and more about the work in the social sector was that what was really needed was not a new app, but rather a new approach to doing things that we often were just simply bringing the wrong tools to the table. That is that we have these massive problems like global poverty that you know are impossible to get our arms around and we're not making enough progress on. And yet we're taking the same tried and true solutions that make a little bit of progress, but not nearly as much as we need. And there was very little risk-taking, not enough ambition. And a lot of the tools that I saw used in Silicon Valley that were driving this sort of rapid pace of progress were missing. And and that's where I came into this idea of uh, really focusing on social innovation and eventually wrote this book, Lean Impact, that tried to capture what my learnings. So you went from commercial sector into government, And then there was this moment you talked about where you decided you actually wanted to write a book on this stuff, which is obviously a huge commitment. So what was the sort of turning point where you realized that there were these ideas that were not only really interesting and working for you, but actually needed to be written down? Yeah, that's a really good question. So 
I, I think that everybody these days is talking about innovation, you know, in government, in the social sector, in, in the private sector. I think innovation is one of the most overused buzzwords in the English language right now because people realize that it's needed. The world is moving faster and faster. Our problems are getting bigger and bigger and we need to keep up. Couldn't agree more. And innovation is really that solution. And yet, I think we really struggle because of some innate sort of incentives and culture that keep things as they are in the social sector and in government to be able to take those big risks, to be able to be ambitious, to try things where we most likely will fail. It's much easier in the private sector because there's real rewards that incentivize people to, like, they want to be a billionaire, so they'll try something that, you know, might not work. Um, but there isn't that same kind of incentive in the social sector and the government. And so I think we need to create those incentives consciously and we need to provide tools that make it easier for people to push against the tide, if you will, because there's so much pressure to kind of you know, play it safe and do things that we know already work and to avoid failing, that it really hampers our ability to be ambitious and ability to innovate. And so I think by having some tools that really helps counter that. And also the reality is that innovating for social impact is far harder than innovating for profits. Um, it's, uh, how so? Well, when you're, as I described earlier, like when you're innovating for profits, your incentives are very, very clearly aligned. If you're successful, you will mm -hmm. get riches, right? Your company or you individually will get riches. Right. So there's really clear incentive to take risks and to innovate. There aren't those same incentives in government and in the social sector. In fact, I was told uh, by a senior government official when I joined government that in government, you can't get fired for something you don't do. You can only get fired for something you do do, right? And and I think the motto there is that there's so much, you know, the sort of culture is one of like, don't stick your neck out because you're just, yeah, risk yeah there's a lot of risk yeah. aversion. Yeah. So it's hard. It's, it's much harder because of that. The incentives aren't aligned with it. And it's also harder because the kinds of changes that we're looking for are often not as easy to quantify, not as easy to optimize for as like, you know, did someone hit the buy button, right? So it's much clearer if what you're trying to do is get more people to hit the buy button than what you're trying to do is break generational cycles of poverty. Um, and so it's much harder that way as well. Yeah, you know, at Spring Impact uh, over the last couple of years, we've been working together, which has just been fantastic. And when I first came into all these ideas that you're talking about, um, I understood them in principle, but actually it was really through doing the work and seeing it come alive in reality that some of the necessities of these ideas really hit home. I wonder if you could share a case study or two of, you know, really when you think it works and what changes when so. Yeah. Um you know, a lot of people think of lean as being frugal, if you will. You know, like we want to be lean because we're nonprofits. We don't have a lot of money. So we want to be lean. And that's actually one definition of the word lean. It's not what we mean when we say lean startup or lean impact. What we mean by lean is to avoid waste. That it's not that we're trying to spend a little bit of money. It's we're trying to be smart and make each dollar go further, not only because we don't necessarily have very much money, but because the problems are so big and we need to get much more leverage out of the money that we have. And so just to pick one case study, one of my favorite organizations that I think has really embraced lean in their culture, even before my book was written. And in fact, their case study in the book is um, Harambe Youth Accelerator, which is a nonprofit social enterprise in South Africa. 
Harumbi Youth Employment Accelerator started in 2011. Their goal was to start solving the huge challenge of youth unemployment in South Africa. To understand more about the problem they sought to tackle and how they adopted the principles of Lean Impact, I spoke to Harumbi's Chief Impact Officer, Shami Suriana Ryan. So already when we started in 2011, South Africa's unemployment rate was really high and our youth unemployment rate was probably one of the highest in the world and it remains so. Um, it's a very unequal society and the scale of the problem was massive. So we had young people, roughly about a, a million or so, coming into the labor market every year, two thirds of whom would not be able to find their way into employment, education or training. So they would fall out of the labor market. Um, quite quickly. And it's grown since then. And unfortunately, the problem has just magnified, given that South Africa's economy has been one of jobless growth impacted by the 2008 recession, but also the pandemic. And now our unemployment rate, our youth unemployment rate at an expanded definition is over 70%. So it's a significant challenge, one that requires a multi-party, multi-stakeholder collaboration to solve. So it's no one institution that can solve it which is why Harambe was started as a public-private partnership and a partnership between government, the private sector, and the social sector to start out with. So it's not a single stakeholder innovation, as it were. So you had a huge problem, a massive problem that you picked. Why did you settle upon using principles of lean to find solutions? Such a good question. I think lean has been in our DNA since the beginning, even though we didn't know that that was the term for it. We have a couple of mantras, I think, that we found in Lean Impact later on, and, and May talks about it a lot, which is one, think big, start small, and also fall in love with the problem, not the solution. So for us, we had systems change in our DNA since the very beginning. And yet we knew that if we looked at the whole problem of the entire complex system of youth unemployment, it would be impossible to solve all of these challenges at once. So start at the point of friction where we could make a difference. So where we started was employers weren't seeing what young people were capable of. So we said, okay, how do we come up with assessments and different ways of signaling to the labor market that young people could actually add value? We tried and tested in the typical lean way. Um, we iterated on this. We didn't build a car by building you know, different parts of the car. We actually built a skateboard, a bicycle, and then came to the car. So by that, I mean, for example, we started testing different ways of measuring a young person's competence. We went with what an employer said they wanted to measure, which was you know, they wanted someone functional in mathematics, but they had tests that were prohibitive and exclusionary. And then we said, actually, these tests don't really demonstrate what a young person is capable of. I remember distinctly an example where to get a job as a packer in a logistics firm, you needed to be more competent in counting in sixes and dozens because warehouses, you know, their packaging is done in units of sixes and twelves. Instead of being really proficient in maths and complex maths, that's what you needed to demonstrate. And that was easy to teach young people. And that Young people were really capable of those. So we started with a point of friction and we understood what the problem really was. We made lots of mistakes and we realized that in order for us to serve the young person, we needed to fall in love with the problem, not the solutions that we had. So constantly that meant, you know, discovering what the real solution was, not necessarily being wedded to a product 
or a certain assessment or way of doing things, but constantly iterating to actually get to the problem and solving it for the young person. As we learn from Shami, Harambi set out to reach an audacious goal. The organization looked into an incredibly massive problem and created a roadmap to solve it. I think there's a few things that I found important in setting a goal. That's Anne May again. The first is to look at a longer time horizon. A lot of organizations that I've worked with tend to focus on strategic plans that are three to five years. And in a three to five year time frame, the tendency for most organizations is to project upwards, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're serving a thousand people now, maybe we'll serve 1,200 next year, maybe 1,500 the year after. And it might be a stretch, but you sort of can envision how you're going to get there. And so you're not really driving for transformational change or not really trying to leapfrog in any way. You're maybe being ambitious, but not revolutionary. Right. Um, and so if you want to be revolutionary, I think you need to have a longer term horizon. So I, I encourage organizations to look 10 or 20 years out to say, what would it mean to really fulfill your mission? Like, why are you here? And are you being ambitious enough such that in 10 to 20 years, you won't be needed anymore if you're successful? So I think that that's an important starting point. It's also important to start by looking at the size of the problem in the world. So whatever is the problem that you are aiming to solve, rather than thinking about what do I think I can do from a bottoms up standpoint, start from the top down, which is like, what is the size of the need that exists? And what portion of that need are you as an organization going to try to tackle? That could be a geographic scope. It could be a demographic scope. It could be a certain percentage of people that you're trying to reach, but really put it in terms of the size of the need. And so that anchors you in a degree of ambition that's relevant for the world, right. where you're really moving the needle on something. And in a time frame that allows for you to really take some risks and figure out something that will ultimately reach escape velocity and, and get you to that goal. That makes total sense. So someone like Harambi, they're setting a an ambitious goal, 10 to 20 years, not focusing just on the short term. They're looking at the actual size of the problem because they want to make a real dent in it. And I just within that, I can see how there are going to be issues with many funders who insist at, you know, one at the worst case, one year cycles, you know, three year, if you're lucky, five years is the maximum. So I can see how the whole funding world and, and incentives actually play against what you're saying, which we can come to. But in, in terms of Harambi, they set this ambitious goal. They looked at the size of the problem. Then what? Well, then they started innovating. They started trying to figure out how are we going to get there? And they tried a number of different ideas. But I think another important thing that um, I think really differentiated Harambe from the very start is they were really focused on key metrics that mattered. Okay. And I think a lot of organizations I see focus on metrics around absolute numbers of counting how many people did we reach? How many people did we reach the next week? And what's more important, I've found, is to focus on what I call innovation metrics, which are metrics around how effective you're being. So for Harambe, what they learned in their research was that in order for a youth to be long-term successful and remain employed and sort of have um, the economic opportunities that they want, it was important for them to become employed, but also to stay in a job for at least a year, that that would kind of set them up on a good long-term trajectory. And so they really made a key objective, not just how many youth did they train, which is, I think, what a lot of organizations might focus on, Mm -hmm. not just how many youth found jobs, but how many really stayed in those jobs for at least a year and looked at sort of 
you know, what percentage of the youth that are coming through their doors really were able to stay in those jobs. And then part of the innovation cycle is then optimizing for that to increase that success rate, right? Um, and so innovation, a lot of times people think of innovation, they want to think of bright, shiny new things. How do I use blockchain for this? Or how do I use AI for this? And I think innovation really instead should start from those core metrics of what is your goal long term? And what are the key metrics that will indicate to you that you're on track for meeting that goal? Right. So if your goal is to um, help a million unemployed youth become employed in a, in a sustainable way and your key metric for measuring that is, you know, are they able to stay in a job for at least a year? Yeah. How, many, how many of the youth that come through our doors are able to get a job and stay in that job for at least a year? Then you can continue to improve on that success rate to get to a point that you are able to reach your overall goal. Yeah. It's so interesting because when I think lean, I don't immediately think about measurement at the same time, but particularly as we see measurement in terms of these random control trials and these huge sort of heavy processes, but actually what you've got here is a way to sort of cut through all of that. And at least at the start until a project is quite well progressed to get the metrics that really matter and going to make a difference. So that makes total sense. And that's key is finding those metrics that are the early indicators to show you whether you're on track for your long-term goals. And innovation is really driven by metrics. It is a different way of managing an organization, managing initiatives mm -hmm. that is really focused on the on performance. Right. Yeah. So if you're if you're at a company, your performance might be, you know, what's my gross margin and what are my profits, right? And if you're a nonprofit, then you're core metrics might be around how cost effective am I able you know, for, for every dollar I spend, how much impact am I able to get? And how do I increase that over time? How do you balance this sort of the actual impact being something that's going to happen over a few years with something that, you know, you may not be able to measure very easily in that time when you want to pivot and change and then learn quickly? Yeah, it's a really good question. This is one of the places where uh, social innovation is so much harder than mm -hmm. innovation in, in the private sector, for sure. um, because a lot of these things do take a long time. And for most organizations, and if for those who don't have it, um, I think it's, it's something important to look at. Most nonprofits have something called a theory of change, with that mm -hmm. basically says something. You know, we're going to do X that's going to lead to Y happening, that's going to lead to Z happening, that's going to lead to something else happening, and eventually will result in a long-term impact. And so, what we want to do is not wait for that entire theory of change to play out before we decide whether anything we're doing is any good because that can be years, it can be decades. And, and you know, we're flying blind the whole way and not able to, and again, if we're trying to be ambitious and trying things that are most likely to fail, you don't want to wait for five or 10 years to figure out if you failed. So instead, what you want to do is break down that problem and try to figure out what are the riskiest linkages in that theory of change? So where do you have confidence that X will lead to Y? And where do you not have confidence yet, because you don't have enough data yet, that X will lead to Y? And focus on the places where you have least confidence and look at what's the smallest, simplest thing you can do that will increase your confidence. Mm -hmm. And this is not um, initially going to likely be a randomized control trial that's expensive and takes a long time. We will yeah. eventually get there. But you want to start out by just increasing your confidence. If you only have 10% confidence, can you get to 20% confidence? Then can you right. get to 50% confidence? And once you get through some of the 
low-hanging fruit that eliminates some of the biggest risks to actually achieving your goal, then over time, when you're more confident, then that's a good time to invest in a much a more rigorous approach to getting even greater confidence. So this idea of you know wanting huge progress and scale, you know, impact at scale remains a buzzword, but you know, it's one that certainly you and I talk about a lot, you know, wanting to change the world at, you know, ever greater levels. It's widely talked about, but I think probably fair to say little understood. And the ideas you're talking about of, you know, innovation in the commercial sector, you know, that there is this incentive, the financial incentive that makes that happen. From your perspective, what do you think are the reasons, the sort of root reasons why we don't see that happening as much in the social sector? What are the problems or the disincentives that are stopping scale of impact happening in the social sector? Yeah, it's a really good question. I, I don't think it's any one problem or any one player. I think it is the way the sector functions as a whole. And I think everybody sort of holds this stasis in place mm -hmm. uh, that the, the norm is that there is very little incentive to take risk. There is a strong disincentive to fail. If you're a nonprofit, the last thing you want to do is fail because you're worried you're going to lose your funding. You're worried yeah. you're going to not be able to pay your payroll. Like you want to play it conservative because you want to keep getting your funding, but you also want to be conservative because you want to make sure you're helping the people that you're trying to serve. Yeah. And when you're talking about people's lives, like I think it, there's an innate conservatism that comes with like, we don't want to take any risks with people's lives. Like we want to be very careful and do what we know works. And all of these things, you know, that are innate to the social sector and also part of how it's evolved over time, kind of keep us in a space where most organizations are really trying to do tried and true things yeah, that yeah. do some good, but that as a whole, we're not making the progress that's needed to keep pace with the problems as quickly as they're evolving, especially this last year and a half where problems Completely, evolved so yeah. fast. Um, yeah. And also even before this last year and a half, if you use the sustainable development goals as a benchmark, we weren't keeping pace with the scale of the problems that exist there. We weren't making enough of a dent to achieve the goals that we have set for ourselves as a world. I could not agree more. And I think, you know, one of the attractions of the book is just that it lays out how this can happen practically but maybe as a you know even though it lays out a process i think one of the challenges is always as a change maker as someone in an organization who actually wants to use these things you know you can read the book of course you can get to understand in theory but how would you recommend people get started and get over some of those barriers let me suggest three specific and concrete things that people can maybe that would be great you know, who are it. listening to this can take home and do tomorrow um the first is to set an ambitious goal like if you have a goal if you look at your strategic plan not your mission which is often you know sort of vague like you know end poverty or achieve world peace right but but when you look at your quantifiable goals which are usually the goals you have in your strategic plan if they are something that you can imagine how you're going to get there they're probably not ambitious enough. <laughs> so look at the size of the need and set a goal, and it can be further out if you need to do that, that you don't yet know how you possibly can achieve. That scares you a little bit. So really have a gap. So you have, you're forced to work differently. 
Right. Because if you have a goal where you can sort of see how you're going to get there and you're going to have to work really hard, there's no reason to take any risk, right? You're just going to try to work a little harder, try to work a little smarter. But if you have something that is 10x what you're currently doing or 100x what you're currently doing, which actually maps to the size of the need that exists in the world, this is often the case, Mm -hmm. then you flip the risk equation on its head. Because what happens then is that if you continue to do what you have been doing, you are for sure going to fail because you know that the thing you've been doing is only going to get to 1% of the solution that you need. Right, right. Um, and so if you take a risk then, there's at least a chance you might succeed. And so turning that equation upside down, I think, is a really important starting point. The second thing I would say is to establish those key innovation metrics. What are the key drivers of getting to that? Is it reducing your costs significantly? Is it increasing your success rate significantly? Is it improving the adoption rate significantly? What are the key drivers that need to change in order for you to get on that different trajectory mm-hmm. and, and have those front and center? So you're like, today we need $1,000 to achieve one success or to reach one person. How do we get that to $100? Right. And then that becomes your innovation challenge and you can start following that. Right. And then the third thing I would say, is, and this is a more of a culture change, is to start practicing playing devil's advocate. One of the things I found that was very different coming from the tech sector to the nonprofit sector is in the tech sector, you know, everyone's always beating up on all the ideas that are out there, trying to make it better, trying to poke holes in it. In the nonprofit sector, because we're all like sacrificing, you know, we're not making as high salaries, we're working really hard, we're, you know, really putting our hearts and souls into the work that we do. The result is that we support each other. It's one of the wonderful things about the sector is how supportive people are of their colleagues and in their organizations and in other organizations. The downside of that is that it's kind of taboo to ask the hard questions, to poke Mm -hmm. holes in things. And we need to allow ourselves the space to do that more. So just have, you know, have like a red team session, you know, a session where you're playing devil's advocate and ask the hard questions of either your current solution or an idea that somebody has for a potentially leapfrog solution, ask the hard questions of what might cause this to fail. At Spring Impact, we've worked with Anne May for the last two years to practically apply lean impact to organizations all over the world. It's quite a different way of working to what most organizations are used to. But if leaders are ambitious, open-minded, and follow the key lean processes from carefully analyzing risk to developing metrics that matter, transformation comes quickly. This show has introduced you to the key concepts in lean impact. If you're interested in exploring this topic more and applying it to your organization, check out Anne May's book, Lean Impact, How to Innovate for Radically Greater Good. It's available at major booksellers, and we've also provided a link in our show notes. That's it from us. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please don't forget to subscribe or follow our podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, I'd appreciate it if you could rate us and give us a review. If you love Mission to Scale, I hope you recommend our show to a friend or colleague. Mission to Scale is produced by Spring Impact and Human Group Media. 
If you want to learn more about our work at Spring Impact, visit springimpact.org and follow us at Spring Impact on Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us and I'll catch you all in the next episode.